Mark chapter 13, at long last. Jeez, we only have four chapters in the Gospel of Mark to go, and it's only taken us 56 weeks to get here. Ah, okay. But, I mean, seriously, this is, this is serious, and this is, this is sad stuff this week. So, starting in verse, um, one of chapter 13, and as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So this isn't the shortest amount of scripture that we've ever tackled here. I mean, you know, I spent two whole programs on Mark 1-1, right? But it's not a lot of material, or or is it? Well, combined with everything that's just happened on the Temple Mount over the last two chapters, and especially the last few verses about the widow and her offering to what had become a national idol, a symbol of cultural pride, and so much so that even the most impoverished of worshippers were contributing to its opulence instead of eating, and not only that, that they put their faith in the temple to protect them just as they did in the days of Jeremiah, assuming that as long as the temple stands, so will they. We're going to talk today about what was going on with the temple historically, with the zealots and Rome, and what ended up happening uh, between 66 and 70, uh, the Common Era. We will also talk about when Mark was probably written and to whom. Some of this will be review, but most of it will be new. We're going to talk about Josephus and Tacitus and Dio Chrysostom and possibly some other first century historians. Hi, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist and I have runny sinuses today and I don't feel like recording, but Thursdays and Fridays are the days that I do this and I really got to be disciplined. So... I apologize for sniffing still. It's going to go on until winter hits. So, welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years worth of blog over at theancientbridge.com. I actually think it's six years now. Um, including uh, my six books that are available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com. And transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. Sniffing again, sorry. All scripture comes this week courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com, and that'll be linked in the transcript, as well as always. You know, sometimes it's like these disciples, they don't hear a word that Yeshua says. 
I mean, seriously, but aren't they like us when we're reading the Bible? We're exactly the same. We want to smack down a fool according to his folly, as we see recommended in Proverbs 26.4. And so we ignore the very next verse telling us not to do it, or we'll become like him. The Bible is a book of full of wisdom, often giving contradictory statements that force us to use our best judgment instead of giving us hard and fast rules. And we hate that, right? And Yeshua, you may call him Jesus, is also all about wisdom. Just like we ignore the half of the wisdom in the Bible that isn't telling us what we want to do in the heat of the moment, the disciples are ignoring that the temple and the temple establishment, having become corrupt, and I know of no historians or commentators, past or present, Jew or Gentile, who deny this. Well, you know, having become corrupt, the temple needs to come down. Just like the flood account, just like the fall of the tabernacle slash temple hybrid at uh, Shiloh, during the times of high priest Eli in the childhood of Samuel the prophet, and the destruction of Solomon's temple and Jerusalem during the 6th century by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. All right, so let's uh, read that first verse of chapter 13 again. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones! And what wonderful buildings. So Yeshua's had his final dispute on the Temple Mount and he and his followers have most likely exited to the north of the city since they're presumably spending the night in Bethany again. And they'll be ending up on the Mount of Olives throughout the rest of chapter 13, starting in verse 3. And the disciples, as usual, do not understand the prophetic actions that have occurred over the course of the last few days. Yeshua was snubbed by the leadership of both Jerusalem and the temple when he entered the city. He came back the next day and disrupted the commerce going on in the court of the Gentiles, which was preventing the temple from operating as a house of worship for all nations. Um, he did not, however, disrupt the sacrifices. He was in the wrong courtyard for that. This was also not the only place you could buy animals. On the third day, as far as we know it was the third day, you know, he's relentlessly uh, challenged by representatives of the Sanhedrin, you know, the chief priests, elders, and scribes, uh, the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees. After defeating them all in various honor challenges, um, no one would dare speak to him anymore. And he tells a dazzlingly and brutally revealing parable against the leadership. You know, uh, otherwise known as the parable of the tenants and the vineyard. After this, they are determined to kill him at the first possible safe opportunity. And yet, as Yeshua and his followers are leaving, his mostly teenage disciples are just gawking at the temple complex in awe like a country bumpkin seeing New York City for the first time. And that would be me. <laughs> I'm not insulting anyone. I can only imagine the difference between Galilean fishing villages and the temple in Jerusalem. You know, we'd be dumbstruck too. Even today. Even if you live in New York City or Paris. 
So once again, as with the disciples' messianic expectations, we have a failure to understand the reality of the situation. Yeshua, therefore, is going to give us a break in the narrative, which is Mark, you know, narrating all of this for us, in order to give a long speech talking about the reality of the future destruction of the temple and really their whole worldview. Within the course of a week, their lives will be turned upside down and inside out, and within another 40 years, the bright center of the Jewish identity and pride will be left in ruins. I can't even begin to relate how central the temple was to their lives and worship. We have very little to compare it to. Even 9-11 falls far short of what this meant to them. After all, most people knew next to nothing about the Twin Towers before 9-11 and didn't care. Now, of course, it's become somewhat of a shrine, but still there's no comparison. I don't know of anyone making a pilgrimage there on a regular basis. All right. And uh, Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will be, that will not be thrown down. Excuse me. Now, this would have been an enormous shock to the disciples who, you know, they would undoubtedly know Psalm 132 by heart. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, the, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away from the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on the throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is the resting place. This is my resting place forever. For here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout with joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame. But on him, his crown will shine. Okay, so into these followers, young followers, okay, these were probably mostly teenagers, with the exception of Peter and, and Matthew. Um, these followers who no longer saw the same offenses in Israel that existed, you know, during the time leading up to the Babylonian conquest. They knew oppression 
But at the same time, relative peace under the Roman rule, I mean, peace that came with a terrible price, of course, all right? But the Roman emperor himself had sacrifices offered on his behalf daily at the temple. Um, and if the temple were to be destroyed, what did that mean for the rest of Jerusalem that, you know, would certainly fall before any of that ever happened? And maybe the rest of Judea, and perhaps their own homes, and their families in Galilee and Perea as well. And that's only if this is at the hands of a foreign army. Would this be an act of God? Destroying his own temple? One thing for sure is that Yeshua has their undivided attention, for once. Gone are all the thoughts of successful armed uprisings against the Romans with Yeshua at the head of an army of the faithful. If the temple's gone, then one way or another, probably everything else is as well. In the space of two verses, Yeshua has changed everything for them. And for Judas, you know, this is probably the straw that broke the camel's back. Now, if you want to get a general idea about the size of these buildings that they're talking about and gawking at, I recommend checking out Mishnah Tractate Midot, which was actually written by a first century priest. Now, make sure you read a commentary version, because without a commentary, you know, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. It's written in, it's practically written in code, scholar, scholar speak. Uh, Kahati, Art Scroll, and JPS, which is the Jewish Publications Society, all have great commentaries. I personally own the complete Kahati commentary. Um, um, we also have Josephus, the historian from which we get most of our information. He was also a priest who served in the temple. And the temple was immense. Far bigger than the people who want to promote the idea that the temple was down in the city of David would have you believe, which Josephus' own account in uh, Wars of the Jews 5.5 uh, sections 1 through 6 makes impossible to believe anyway. It was like a massive city in and of itself, and in fact made up about a sixth of the area of the city with its own somewhat independent government and infrastructure. With the dimensions recorded in Midot, a city of David base location would end us up with a six inch cubit instead of the standard 18 inch cubit of scripture and the royal cubit of almost 22 inches that we find represented by the outline of the original Temple Mount still visible up on the Temple Mount platform. Now Tacitus, a first slash second century Roman historian, he speaks of the layout of first century Jerusalem in histories, uh, five, section eight. A great part of Judea consists of scattered villages. They also have towns. Jerusalem is the capital. There stood a temple of immense wealth. First came the city with its fortifications. Then the royal palace. And the royal palace actually was in the city of David. Um, in, in ancient times. And then there was, um, he's talking about Herod's palace though, which was, I believe, on the western part of the city. It's been a long time since I've looked at that old map. Um, then within the innermost defenses, the temple itself. Only the Jew might approach the gates. All but priests 
were forbidden to pass the threshold. This certainly does not describe a city of David locale for the temple, but instead a central location at the very center of the defenses at the highest point, which is always where ancient people put temples. Gods lived on mountains. You have them up above everyone else because nobody gets to be above them. All right. Now, Wars is also very clear that the Fortress Antonia actually enjoined the temple complex at the northeast corner and overlapped it. And that is also in Wars 5.5. Um, uh, the buildings were enormous and gorgeous. Uh, in the Talmud, in Baba Batra 4a, uh, it says, He who has not seen Herod's building, a.k.a. the temple, has never in his life seen a truly grand building. And Josephus says, viewed from without, now you just close your eyes and imagine this. Viewed from without, the sanctuary had everything that could amaze either mind or eyes. Overlaid all around with stout plates of gold, the first rays of the sun it reflected so fierce a blaze of fire that those who endeavored to look at it were forced to turn away as if they had looked straight at the sun. To strangers as they approached it seemed in the distance like a mountain covered with snow, for any part not covered with gold was dazzling white. And that's from Wars 5.5.6. Um, and the stones were enormous. And anyone who's seen the master course in the Western Wall Tunnels can verify it. Um, in Antiquities 15.11.3, now the temple was built of stones that were white and strong, and each of their length was 25 cubits, their height was 8, and their breadth about 12. And the master course stone itself, and I'll link it so you can see it in there, okay, uh, in the transcript. The master core stone itself measures 44 feet long, 11.5 feet high, and 15 feet wide, and is estimated to weigh 570 to 630 pounds. Obviously, no one's going to be weighing it anytime soon, though. Yeshua made the claim that not one of the stones of the temple complex would be left standing, um, and that's up on top of the temple mount. And that ended up being true for various reasons. Now, Mark chapters 11 and 12 represent the coming of the Lord to his temple as prophesied in Malachi 3, uh, verses 1 through 2, which we've gone over a lot, at which time the elders, priests, and scribes had a choice to either accept or reject him. And with one notable exception of a scribe, they categorically, categorically snubbed and rejected him. So he did not purify the sons of Levi at that time so that they could make offerings in righteousness. Prophecies are often conditional. Um, Yeshua leaves the temple, never to return, and next week we'll see him depart to the Mount of Olives to give the Olivet Discourse. But right here we have the verdict of the covenant lawsuit of Yahweh against the temple and the leadership of Israel, not the Jews. His, you know, this is the leaders. Historically, that has been one huge tragic blunder, laying the rejection of Messiah on the entire nation. Now, what's a covenant lawsuit? Um, I talk about it more in my curriculum book, Ten Commandments and the Covenants of Promise, but I'll just briefly sum it up here. Covenants have conditions, and when those conditions have been violated, the giver of the covenant or the betrayed covenant partner can enact a lawsuit against the violators. 
The prophets were constantly speaking in this sort of language before and after the Babylonian exile and even during. Like I always say about Isaiah 1 through 39, the message is you'd better behave or else the verdict in Yahweh's lawsuit against you is coming and you will not like it. And the rest is like, okay, so now that you're suffering the consequences of the verdict against you, it's time to, you know, straighten up and fly right. Um, or how about Isaiah 1 through 39? Dude, you're going to end up in jail if you don't cut it out. And the rest of Isaiah is like, well, let's talk about your parole hearing coming up. And maybe that goes too far. But the point I'm making is that this is legal language and Yeshua is delivering a verdict as a judge. The whole coming into Jerusalem wasn't just for Passover. The Passover simply dictated the timing. The whole coming into, you know, the verdict was about what happened when the chosen king of Israel entered Jerusalem after his triumphant defeat of demon sickness, death, physical disability, and nature itself, proving his authority as Yahweh's definitive covenant mediator um the arm of the lord you know uh promised messiah uh you know the uh, the promised yahweh warrior okay he was rejected by the very people who should have been the ones to welcome him at his arrival but when they didn't he went into the temple but did not perform the sacrifices that normally would have accompanied a royal triumph that was the first sign of rejection of the temple's functionality. Then the next day, he cast out the money changers and the dove sellers who were disrupting the functionality of the temple, you know, which was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, um, as it says in Isaiah 56, 7. This was the second sign of the rejection of the temple's intended functionality. Then after all the challenges... Yeshua condemns the priestly elites as murderous traitors, and this was the sign of the third rejection. Three strikes, you know, and you're out. But what does that mean? That the temple was never a good thing? No, 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 not at all. Yahweh commanded the building of the tabernacle in the wilderness so that he could be present among his people with the priesthood as mediators. Yahweh gave David all the directions for the building of the first temple in Jerusalem, as we see in 1 Chronicles 28.19, um, when David said, All this he made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord, all the work to be done according to the plan. Plans for building the temple. When that temple was destroyed because it had been too badly contaminated and defiled by idolatry and bloodshed, Haggai and Zerubbabel were commanded to rebuild it. And Yahweh says they flat out will not be blessed until they do so. In Haggai uh, 1.8, Go up to the hills and bring wood and bring, build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. So the temple was never inherently anything that Yahweh hated, okay? Just what was done with it. The tabernacle and the temple were originally expressions of intimacy. Of course, as we see in Ezekiel 11.23, the presence of Yahweh left the temple before its destruction, um, leaving for the Mount of Olives, and never once rested on the second temple. 
Yeshua is about to do the same thing. He's already left the temple, and then in the next verse, we will see him sitting on the Mount of Olives. Okay, The Spirit of Yahweh has departed the temple once more for the last time. Yeshua, who over the last two chapters has functionally replaced the temple as the location of God's presence on earth in front of an audience, he's now formally condemning it. It will be destroyed, and not one stone would be left standing on another. And for that matter, very little of Jerusalem in general would not be destroyed, according to Josephus. What is not toppled will largely be burned or covered in rubble. And we can still see the scorch marks today from the devastation of the fire set by the armies of Titus. All right, we'll be back in just a few minutes. Rosenquist, and welcome back to uh, this week's episode of Character in Context, where we're talking about the destruction of the Second Temple and the siege of Jerusalem, and also, you know, the siege of much of Judea by the Romans, in light of Yeshua's prophecy um, that is probably the oldest document. Um, the chapter 13 um, of Mark is probably the oldest document ever written about Yeshua, scholars believe. Anyway, uh, we were talking about uh, the covenant lawsuit. You know, so because this is the verdict of a covenant lawsuit, this, you know, not one stone will be left on another, there's no pleading for reprieve. There is nothing in there about Yeshua going through the temple, preaching destruction in 40 years the way Jonah preached the destruction of Nineveh, you know, would occur in 40 days. Why not? Why is this message only given to his most intimate followers? Because it's a final verdict and not a warning. All right. There will be no chance for repentance. And in fact, we have seen this theme repeatedly throughout the gospel as we saw it in Isaiah. In Mark 4, uh, with the giving of the parable of the sower, Yeshua explains to his disciples that he speaks in parables for the same reason that Isaiah was commanded to preach. So that they would hear, but not understand, and see, but not perceive. The time for, you know, any wooing of the leadership to repentance is over. Um, John came for that. They didn't go for it. Uh, Yeshua was and is the final word of the covenant. He is the definitive interpreter of what Torah means. He didn't come to talk to them, talk them into repenting. He came to fight Satan and his demons, to overcome sickness and disability, to show his authority and to observe and judge and to save his people. And he didn't come to judge the people in general. You know, he did judge the temple establishment. Now, he came to his own, as the verse goes, and they received him not. Um, the leadership didn't recognize the hour of their visitation because of corruption, and especially in the priestly elites, as 
all commentators, Jew and Gentile, you know, ancient, modern, said the priestly elites were incredibly corrupt. Now, how do we know this is a final verdict? It's because Yeshua presents it as a done deal and not as a threat. And they took him seriously enough that their first question after this, you know, after he speaks, is to ask him when it will happen. Not why. They don't do that. They don't beg him to relent. For some reason, you know, one that's not explained, they are taking him absolutely seriously and they aren't missing the point of what he's saying. He just told them that the center of the world as they know it is going to crumble and all they can think to ask is when. And he does not give them a definitive date and he will not, which is undoubtedly what they want. However, the Gospel of Mark was written before the fall of Jerusalem and before the destruction of the temple. It was written to an audience based in Rome, far from the temple and whose believing population, both Jew and Gentile, had likely never seen it. The temple in Jerusalem was one of the architectural wonders of the ancient world, and the destruction of any temple was big news whether you worshipped the god in question or not. They believed in regional gods. Even pagans did. The lack of specific details really lends to the credibility of the account and the early date of it. Certainly if this was written post-70 CE, there would have been a mention of the fires, which burned so hot as to reduce much of the limestone to powder, and um, they were much worse than anything else. So even those biblical scholars who debate everything else and whether or not Yeshua really said it, this is always credited directly to Yeshua and timed before the fall of Jerusalem. However, as is biblically typical, it would take a generation for this to happen. The barren fig tree was being cursed, and indeed the Mount of Olives would be deforested of both olive and pine trees during the siege. The Temple Mount was going to be proverbially cast into the sea. And I'm going to tell you that, you know, years ago when I was doing, and when I was really heavy into temple study, which I enjoyed, I wanted to see the rebuilding of the temple, but not anymore. Yeshua is the final eschatological temple, and we do not need one built by human hands. Even though the others were commanded by God and were built with human hands. Yeshua is a building of Yahweh's own design and creation. Nowhere is the literal building of a new temple anywhere commanded. Yeshua is my temple, my mediator, my high priest, my access, my everything I need to approach Yahweh. He is superior to anything we could ever fashion. He replaced the functionality of the temple as the center of our worship, focus, mediation between God and man, all that. To attempt to replace him with a building is something that is not needed. It's to miss the point. The time of blessing emanating from the Temple Mount is over, and blessing now emanates from Yeshua and, by extension, through his people, or at least it should. The first tabernacle temple hybrid at Shiloh was destroyed because of the gross sins of the sons of Eli in encroaching upon what only belongs to Yahweh in taking the fat portions for themselves and refusing to eat as he commanded boiled meat and due to the sexual sin with women who would come to sacrifice and for the sin of carrying the ark presumptuously into battle. 
Solomon's temple was destroyed because of rampant idolatry and oppression. The second temple was destroyed because of oppression, collaboration with the Romans, greed among the priesthood, turning the temple into an idol, murder, encroachment, and rejection of their divine visitation. And there were a lot of events leading up to the beginning of the end in 66 of the Common Era. All right. It was a time of rising tensions between Jews and Romans. Uh, Caligula, and I, I'm linking an article in the transcript, actually ordered an image of himself erected within the temple in Jerusalem in 40 the Common Era. And not just in the temple, but actually in the Holy of Holies. To put this into perspective, there was nothing in the Holy of Holies during Second Temple times. Being that the Ark of the Covenant was lost during or before the destruction of the First Temple by the Babylonians. Having directly declared himself Jupiter incarnate, Caligula was determined to bring the Jews who had been traditionally and otherwise ex legally exempted from imperial cult worship. Okay, he wanted to bring them into line finally. Now, the Jews were so distraught that they left their fields during planting season, right after Sukkot, in order to petition the new governor of Syria, uh, Publius Petronius, uh, not to go forward with the plans. Fortunately, Petronius was no fan of the plan either. Too much drama and managed to delay long enough for Caligula to be murdered in 41 of the Common Era. Now, Caligula's replacement, Claudius, at some point during his reign, either formally expelled the Jews from Rome or simply forbade them to meet together, resulting in the same thing, resulted in them leaving Rome, you know, en masse. Now, Nero, of course, is famous for his persecution of Christians, who were a Jewish sect at this point of history. So there was never any love lost between the groups, but you know, conditions within Judea, Galilee, and thereabouts you know, had always been difficult, and especially with the animosity that was a perennial problem between the Jews and the prefects and the procurators and the governors, who would often create crises just for the sport of it. Like when Pontius Pilate moved idolatrous Roman standards into the city of Jerusalem under the cover of night. Um, thinking he could get away with it wanting to see what he could get away with. Now, Rome was all about power and order. You know, their power and their order. Coexistence was always tenuous at best, and various groups handled Roman authority in different ways. The Sadducean high priestly family and their cronies collaborated with Rome and grew rich in the process. The Pharisees adopted more of a live-and-let-live mentality, and as long as the officials didn't do anything they considered to encroach upon their religious life... And the sanctity of Jerusalem and the temple precincts, they mostly just ignored the Romans as much as they could. The Qumran sect retreated into the wilderness at some point before this and avoided the Romans altogether. Uh, the normal populace just tried to stay out of the way of Rome as they were too busy just trying to survive. But there was one group determined to get back to the good old days. You know, the Hasmonean times when the Jews were at one another's throats and even crucifying and otherwise slaughtering one another in power struggles. But hey, at least they were ruled over by other Jews. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, oh man. <laughs> now this sect was called the Zealots. 
They were for the return of autonomous self-rule and severely disagreed with the Pharisees who felt that foreign rule was something only Yahweh had the authority to end through the Messiah. They saw this as punishment for sins. And they were just enduring it. The Zealots, on the other hand, believed that faith was best exhibited by popular uprising and rebellion to enact a renewed kingdom. And before they were done, more Jews would be dead by their efforts under the leadership of the various rival factions among the Zealots than by those of the Romans. All right. Now, Yeshua was not the only one preaching the destruction of the temple before 70 of the Common Era. We have the testimony of Yoma. My notes say 99B, but I know that is not correct. It's 39B. The sages taught. During the tenure of Shimon Hatzadik, the lot for God always arose in the high priest's right hand. After his death, it occurred only occasionally, but during the 40 years prior to the destruction of the second temple, in other words, from the time of the covenant lawsuit verdict on, um, the lot for God did not arise in the high priest's right hand at all. And the, the right hand is the honorable hand, remember. So too, the strip of crimson wool that was tied to the head of the goat that was sent to Azazel did not turn white, and the westernmost lamp of the candelabrum did not burn continually, and it was commanded to. And the doors of the sanctuary opened by themselves as a sign that they would soon be opened by armies until Rabban Yohanan ben Sakai scolded them. He said to the sanctuary, 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 why do you frighten yourself with these signs? I know about you that you will ultimately be destroyed, and Zechariah son of Edo has already prophesied concerning you. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Lebanon being an appellation for the temple. Josephus's Wars 6.5.3 talks about the phenomenon of the temple doors coming open as well. Um, but he was also, he also speaks of a prophet named, um, Jesus. It would have been, you know, Yeshua. It was a very common name in the first century who prophesied against the city and the temple starting in about 62 of the common era. So before the uprisings. There was one Jesus, the son of Ananus, a plebeian and a husband, husbandsman, who four years before the war began and at a time when the city was in very great peace and prosperity, came to that feast whereupon it is our custom to make, for everyone to make tabernacles to God in the temple, <coughs> began on a sudden to cry aloud, a voice from the east, a voice from the east, a voice from the four winds, a voice against Jerusalem and the holy house, a voice against the bridegrooms and brides, and a voice against this whole people. The beginning of the revolt was like a perfect storm situation. It was just stupid. <laughs> In Caesarea, these things are often just stupid, aren't they? In Caesarea, some Greeks, Greeks, sacrificed birds in front of a local synagogue, and in retribution, Eliezer ben Hananiah put an end to the prayers and sacrifices in the temple on behalf of the emperor, which was one of the only reasons they were even exempted from imperial cult worship in the first place. This was a huge deal. Bandits began attacking Romans, and there were taxation protests. 
the temple was actually invaded by Roman soldiers under the order of the procurator, and after that, there was nothing that could really stop what occurred over the next four years. To call it a war of the Jews, and the reason the Romans were going in to invade the temple was to get the 17 talents that Rome had given to the temple so that they could sacrifice for the emperor, okay? Hey, if they weren't going to sacrifice for him, he was taking the money back. Uh, you know, to call it a war of the Jews versus the Romans would be inaccurate, as it was a war of Jews versus Jews as well. The rebels were ruthless towards any Jews they considered to be either collaborators or simply not on their side of the war in their faction. This was not simply a war that took place in and around Jerusalem, but also involved the rest of Judea. Those who could fled to Galilee and other regions in order to escape slaughter at the hands of the Zealots and the Romans. Now, Yeshua is going to talk about destruction on such massive levels that there are many who assume he could not possibly be talking about Jerusalem and the temple. But that would be to ignore his immediate audience, which would not be us. And how what happened during the Great, Re what happened during the Great Revolt, you know, meant, um, to the Jewish people. When destruction is happening to you, to your capital city, to your temple, to your people, to your religion, because that's, they, they equated their religion with the temple. It's the end of the world. It's more horrible than anything that's ever happened before or will happen again. It doesn't matter to you that this is only one small city and the temple in that city. Religiously, spiritually, nationally, etc. There was no city on earth except for Jerusalem, and there was no temple except in Jerusalem. And there was no destruction that mattered except that which came upon Jerusalem, you know, that ended up being so complete. Think about this. That we're still digging up ruins and the temple has never been rebuilt. 1,950 years now, 51 years now, and it still and has remained very much a city under siege and subject to violence. It's never ended. So when Yeshua talks about the destruction being unparalleled and never to be rivaled again, I think we have to take into account the fact that it's still ongoing. And Josephus talks about the horrors of war, about cannibalism, all that. That might be legendary. We have to remember when reading Josephus that although he was there in person and witnessed all of this, that he was caught between a rock and a hard place. He was initially siding with and fighting on behalf of the rebels, but he had to surrender in 67 and ended up a slave to future Emperor Vespasian, only to be freed in 69, and ended up part of the household as a Roman citizen. So, when he wrote Antiquities and Wars, he was writing under the patronage of the Flavian dynasty. So, what he wrote had to walk a fine line between not condemning the Jewish people too much, because he wanted to protect them, and while at the same time celebrating his patrons and their accomplishments and the rightness of their cause. Um, I'm going to skip a lot of the actual details of the four-year siege because we'll be covering some of it in the upcoming weeks, but I do want to talk about some things. Um, Titus had originally not wanted so much destruction, but the rebels left him with little choice. No religious Roman man relished the thought of destroying any temple. Uh, but unwilling to yield 
or surrender and actually spurred on by false prophets who were promising a number of things. Some were claiming, you know, that Yahweh would destroy the Roman armies at any moment and that the faithful would be rewarded. And so there were people who, instead of fleeing from the city, once the armies arrived, actually fled into the temple precincts. And the scene within the temple precincts, precincts was a nightmare. Christians, of course, according to Eusebius, had fled much earlier to Pella. Uh, we see that in Church History 3.5. And I'm not going to repeat it because some of it's really anti-Semitic. Um, you know, times were the times. Uh, Dio Chrysostom, um, in 60, his, 666, uh, 2 and 3. Um, the Jews resisted Titus with more ardor than ever, uh, as it were a kind of windfall, an unexpected piece of luck to fall fighting against a foe far outnumbering them. They were not overcome until a part of the temple had caught fire. Then some impaled themselves voluntarily on the swords of the Romans. Others killed each other. Others did away with themselves or leaped into the flames. They all believed, especially the last, that it was not a disaster but victory, salvation, and happiness to perish together with the temple. Um. Now, Josephus claims that 97,000 Jews were taken as slaves after the revolt and 1.1 million were killed. Now, that being said, Josephus is notorious for grossly inflating numbers, but that gives us an idea of how this looked at the time, that the destruction and the loss of life were just beyond catastrophic. Now, let's talk right now about Yeshua's claim that not one stone would be left standing on any other because there is a prophecy in Zechariah that is very important and often overlooked, all right? Now, Zerubbabel of, is, of course, called the signet ring of the Lord in Haggai 2. In Zechariah 4, 6 through 10, an angel speaks to him saying, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. And of course, Zerubbabel is an ancestor of the Messiah. Now, there are scholars who see here a prophecy that the Temple Mount would again in the future become a plain, completely desolate of buildings. Um, for the purpose of preparing the way for the eschatological temple, um, the top stone, the Messiah, you know, leaving no temple in the world save Yeshua himself. No temple of Yahweh anyway. And so Yeshua, in proclaiming that there would be no stone left on another, 
was actively declaring his replacement of the temple as the center of true Jewish life, nationality, and worship. Something to think about. Um, certainly, it would not be the only scripture in the prophets to have immediate and fuller future fulfillment in Yeshua. Uh, now, although Titus leveled the Temple Mount, he did not level all of Jerusalem. He left the entirety of um, the three towers built by Herod and the westernmost wall, the city for his soldiers, soldiers to find shelter in. Um, behind. The only reason any part of them was, uh, was left standing was because Titus said he wanted to prove how great a city he had destroyed. And you can find that in Wars of the Jews 7.1.1. You do not waste four years of a Roman army's life, plus their lives, plus their resources, and have your city remain standing at the end. <laughs> I mean, look at this from Rome's point of view. Not defending them, but you know, we gotta look at their point of view too. You know, mark up the final level of destruction to anger, frustration, vengeance, and Romans making an example of the pride and joy of Jewish religion and nationalistic hopes. And this, this should have been the end of such things, all right? From the Roman point of view, they thought it would be. But two more rebellions would follow. Um... One in from between 115 to 117 and one from what 130 to 135. Is that right? I'm talking to myself. Um, oh, now there is this old urban legend that we're going to close out with that the armies destroyed the temple because they were trying to get every last bit of gold that had melted between the stones. And although some claim the story comes from Josephus, it doesn't. You know, and it no one, I don't think anyone can really track it down. Although some modern authors like, Ernest Martin, whose research is bad anyway, um, say it's a fact. Um, it's not. Um, sounds good, but they all do. Otherwise, why would anyone pass them on? See you next week.